But I want you to open your Bible this morning to the book of Psalms, Psalms 139. Psalms 139. Now, the last five weeks or Sunday morning that I've spoken, I've spoken on love, on God's eternal love. I find it to be a marvelous subject. I find it to be something that is over our head as far as casually understanding it. God needs to show you what that is to appreciate it. And when he does begin to give us glimpses of light as to what his love is and how magnificent it is, how deep it goes, what it does, and how wonderful it all is, it gives you a new picture of God. And when somebody says, you know, God is love, and you think about what you've learned, he is all of that. And I am so glad for that, because that's the reason I'm here. I'm here because God has loved me. I didn't deserve it, but it pleased him to do that, and I'm so thankful. But more and more, there's a change takes place. As love in you, as God is at work in you, changing you, he's making you more the way he wants you to be. And today I want to talk about something that is the opposite of that is hate. I want to talk about Christian hatred. What a terrible title for a message, Christian hatred. Because if Christians do hate, then we need to define what it is you hate, what do you mean by hate, and in what way does hate manifest itself because if we're followers of God and God is love, how could we hate? Would God ever hate? Does the Bible say that God hates anything? Is God capable being a God of love? Is he capable of hate? And so the, the word and the idea itself, while not a good thing to think, it's not a pleasurable thought, it still demands our investigation. What does it mean when the Bible uses several times, as you'll see, instances in the Bible where hate is aligned either with God towards something or somebody or with us towards something or somebody, how are we supposed to understand that? Because it obviously, you know, the Bible tells us that we are to, you know, hate your mother, your father, Luke 14, your own life also. It doesn't mean that we despise ourselves, that we loathe ourselves that we don't like ourselves, it doesn't really mean that because, well, you love your parents. You couldn't love your parents and hate your parents at the same time unless you understood something deeper than just our understanding of hate. See, Jesus said you can love less. If you love your mother, father more than me, said in Matthew 10, he said, if you love your parents more than me, you're not worthy of me. But then in Luke 14, he says, you can't be my disciple unless you hate your mother, hate this, hate that, hate that. So we have to understand that we don't despise our parents. We don't despise these things. We're not malevolent towards it. But we do always have to put God where he is and allow nothing to have more of our affections than he does. Everything has a place. Everything has its place. But God is supreme in everything in our lives. That doesn't always prove to be true in our choices, but it should be. But because God isn't our number one choice for affections and devotions, it's the reason why a lot of Christians aren't doing as well as they should. Now, I hope I can explain that. 
But let's read our verse here, our text in Psalms 139, verse 19. Surely thou wilt slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloody men. For they speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take thy name in vain. Does God have enemies? Do they mock him in their comedy acts or in movies and their portrayals of God? Do they make light of spiritual matters and holy things? He's referring to that also. Verse 21. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? And am I not grieved with those that rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. Now, if I'm wrong about that, he said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me, O Lord, in the way everlasting. Is it true, your Bible says you have to agree with this, does the Bible say that God has enemies? Yes. Do they, by their lifestyle, hate him? Well, they would never say that. I don't hate God. The very way you live, the way you put things in your perspective, the way you treat spiritual matters, your indifference to God, your casualness towards him that he's not as big a deal as the Bible says he is towards him is a form of what God would call hate. You remember in Malachi chapter 1, God was complaining to his people about how they treated his word and him. He said, you know, I said in my word, when you bring me a sacrifice, bring me one without blemish and holy and perfect, I want it to cost you something. And yet you're bringing to me stuff that's sick, got broken legs and things like that. And he said, why don't you offer that to your governor? Well, you wouldn't because you'd be embarrassed because it would be a, not a very nice thing to offer your governor, some old sick calf. But he said, you bring it to me. Then he goes on to use the words, despise me. He said, why do you despise me? And they say, we don't despise you. And he said, yes, you do the way you act. In the ceremonies, you know, you come before me and you say, what a wearisome burden this is. We have to do it all the time. Well, bring it, you know, it's just an indifferent, casual attitude about God. And God describes that attitude towards him as hate. I mean, it's just like, you, you know, you're God. Or yeah, 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 yeah. But you don't have any deep significance in my life that I'm going to arrange my whole life to live the way you want me to. I'm not willing to do that because my picture of God is he's a loving God and he'll tolerate anything and everything. And we're all, we'll be all right in the end. It's okay. And God says that attitude is to him like hate, a total indifference. Just, I don't care. You know, I've, I'm here, aren't I? I mean, I'm, I'm in church, but whew, how, how much longer are you going to preach? It's just like I don't really care that much about what we're doing. I just want the benefits of the social position I have. I'm a member of a church. But as far as having my life affected and changed by this, I don't think, I don't think I'm into that. I'm not so sure God wouldn't say people with that attitude hate God. 
But it doesn't mean hate the way we understand hate. Because if we hated God, if our English word for hate ruled us, we wouldn't even be here. So, but with God, he sees it differently. That indifference, something that has affected you in the world has made you put God either second, third, or down the ladder and put yourself first. You see, the word hate in our text here is in contrast to love. It means the opposite of love. That's what the word hate means. And David said, as he wrote this, he said, Lord, do not I hate them in verse 21. Do not I hate them. I looked in a dictionary, there's a number of dictionaries that just describe hate as well as the word love. And there's many definitions that I could have written down. I've written down one I would like to share with you. Because, you know, while the word hate is an awful word, it has a dual meaning. It can mean to love less, like with, you know, you can't put anything before God. You still love your wife and your children, and, and you take care of yourself. You don't hate all that, but you never put it before God. It means love less, and it also means absolutely to hate, to despise, find despicable, malevolent, and I will have nothing to do with it. That kind of hate. That's how we understand hate in the English language. But one of the dictionaries that I looked at said this. The Hebrew word for hate expresses an emotional attitude towards persons and things which are opposed, detested, despised. And then this is the key. And with which one wishes to have no connection or relationship. Now, that's really, really important in a Christian life. We may not have wrapped ourselves around that yet, but that's a really important thing to do. Anything that is opposed to God, is indifferent to God, is against God, I must also be against it. Anything that God is opposed to and that God is against, I must be against that. Because the effect of something outside of God is devastating. See, the thought behind what I want to say today about hatred, the bigger picture, we're talking about separation. And the truth of the matter is, you won't separate yourself from anything that you put before God. Nothing. It depends on what your priorities are. If God is not a priority, something else will be, and that'll win out in the battle. And you cannot have God and your way at the same time. It has to be all God and trusting him for your way. Put your finger here. Turn to Psalm 106. Psalm 106 and verse 34. Now here he's describing when God sent the Israelites into Canaan's fair and happy land, which is more properly the promised land, he told them to do an unsavory thing that we probably have trouble with in the church. He said, destroy them all. You read Deuteronomy, I think it's seven. He said, destroy all of them. Leave nothing there because if you do, if you leave anything there, you will gravitate towards it. Your curiosity will make you investigate what was it about their religion that, 
made them do that. Let's look at it. And he said, there'll be a spirit. Now, he didn't say this, but I would say it. There'll be a religious spirit there that will draw you in and away from God. And your curiosity will be the end of you. You get rid of everybody else because if you don't, there'll be a tricks in your eyes, thorns in your sides. They will harass you and they will overcome you because a little leaven, what? That's the truth. You cannot tolerate leaven. You must hate leaven because if you don't hate it, you'll investigate it and look at it and think about it. Psalm 106. He said, verse 34, they did not destroy the nations concerning whom the Lord commanded them. But what does it say in verse 35? But were mingled among the heathen and learned their ways. And that is still true today in the church. Now, you talk about a loving God. In spite of that, even as that exists way too much amongst us, God still loves us. You know why? Because he's bigger than all of that kind of stuff. And in the end, he's going to do what he does to relieve us of it or deliver us from it. But you know, your Bible said they mingled themselves among the heathen. Didn't God warn them against the heathen? Didn't he tell them, have nothing to do with them? Don't learn their ways. Don't learn their customs. Burn their idols. He said this in Deuteronomy. Burn everything they have until there's not even a trace of anything about those people left. He said, those people are an abomination to me. Everything they do, all their customs, all their ways, they are an abomination to me. I'm sending you in as my destroyers. I want you to rid the country of all of them. Leave nobody. Nothing. Destroy them all. Their customs, their ways, all their books, all their whatever they have, their temples, everything. Because if you don't, whatever you leave, you'll mingle with. And when you do, you'll become like them. That's the nature of the spirit world. There is a real spirit Bunches of spirits in this world. The Bible said we wrestle not with flesh and blood. We wrestle with powers. Agents of the devil, darkness. They're everywhere. They do their very best. The spirits in the last days, some shall depart from the faith. Why? They will give heed to seducing spirits. That's what was in the promised land. The spirits that was behind these people causing them to worship and to burn their children in the fire and offer them to these stick and stone gods. And all the freedoms and luxuries and the orgies and all the trash that they did, which appeals to the human flesh and to curiosity. He said, get rid of all of them. If you don't, you'll become like them and I'll have to do to you what you're going to do to them. And he did. He did. Here's the deal. God is willing to be on your side in full measure. All the power of heaven. But the conditions are you have to commit yourself to his way and get rid of anything else that isn't according to his way. You cannot allow yourself to tolerate stuff that God will and is going to judge. Because what God is going to judge, God hates. There, I said it. 
If he didn't hate it, he wouldn't judge it. But he will judge it. Now you think of that. That God says, if you mingle with them, you will learn their customs, you will enjoy what goes with it, the feeling, and the next thing you know, you will become a liberal. Because you will, by nature, talk yourself out of what's wrong with it. You begin to dress like them. You begin to act like them. You begin to talk like them. You'll go where they go. You'll dance with all the stuff they dance. You'll dress like them because you've convinced yourself, how can I win these people if I'm not like them? They win. They won. You're a convert. Just like the young lady who says, well, he's not a Christian, but I'll bring him to church. I'll convert him. And then 10 years, she's like him. You're dealing with something that's bigger than you are. And the only thing bigger than that is God. And God establishes the system. He said, this is the way you got to walk. Everything that is designed to destroy you, you must hate it or you will turn to it. Today, a liberal couldn't sacrifice a lamb to God. The cute little thing. My kids love it. It sleeps with one of them. And they rub on it and love on it. Well, that, think of how it would scar my child if I killed this lamb. And the way they had to kill it, the Passover, you know, they held it and cut his throat and jerking and the blood goes out. What a horrible thing. Well, why would God, a loving God, want to do that? So we begin to talk about a new gospel. A Christ-less gospel. Everything that Jesus holds near and dear to us as a way of life, we have talked ourselves out of it, or somebody's trained to talk you out of it. Next thing you know, we don't believe anything that doesn't fit our plans. We're having church, but it's nothing. It's just a religious activity that produces nothing but coming judgment. If we don't hate our sins of yesteryear, you will still play with them. If you don't hate what alcohol did to you, you'll go back to it. If you don't hate all those mistakes you made, I mean, you've said it, man, I can't believe I did that. Remember you said that? I hate myself for doing it. Why'd I do that? Man, I hate that. I did. I hate that. You've said it. You said a lot, probably. But it's a good thing when you do because it's, it's a form of conviction. But if you hate it, if you hate it, you'll turn away from it. You will despise it. I've thought many times when the days were dark and not much was going on, and you know, this is years and years ago, about just going back to where it was, but then the, the reality, this is God. The reality would hit me. What would you go back to? All that nasty lifestyle you lived? All those vulgar words and all that stupid lifestyle? You want to go back to that? That is certain death because you were walking in death. God brought you out to life and is changing you and training you to walk with him. You want to go back to what he's already said he's going to judge? That's what a fool would do. Would go back. Well, it's so hard to walk this way. It is hard. Nobody said it was easy. 
the choices we have to make as Christians are not easy choices. They're different than the way we were trained. Everything, God is rearranging everything. The mind is being what? Renewed to see things differently and think differently. Our feelings are back here. Our emotions are back there. And, but, uh, oh, what am I going to do? It was so bad what I did. So evil. I sit in church on Sunday morning and check out the girls, that type of thing, that type of thing. Would you agree with me that that's evil? Of course it was. Now God brings you to a place where the, even the thought of that, and they come. You suppress it, and you think that's not right, because I hate that. Because the way I was, I was dead, and I was dying, and a loving God had every right on his terms to judge me and sentence me to eternal death. That's what I deserve. That's what I wanted. And he brought me out of that. But now he says, all of you that come to me, you can take your finger out of uh, the first verse. Keep it right here in Psalm 106 because I'm not done. And go to 2 Corinthians 6. 2 Corinthians 6. This is so familiar to all of you, but I want you to see something said here that we gloss over sometimes when we read this. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, why? Obviously, why? Because when you mingle with unbelievers, you will Almost always adapt yourself to them so that they will accept you and like you, but they will never adapt themselves to your way that you as a spiritual person will accept them. And what they talk about, their ideas and their conclusions about matters, is just the opposite of what God is teaching you. What do you have in common with these people? Well, you keep telling yourself, well, I'm, you know, you're going to mingle, you keep mingling. And eventually, you'll be afraid to make the right decision because you don't want to lose them. You don't mind losing God, but you don't want to lose your friends. Listen to it. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has right with wrong? And what communion has light with darkness? It'd be like me and some rapt star sitting down having a conversation. About what? About what? He didn't want to hear about Jesus, and I really don't want to hear his music. I mean, I really, I'm more against what he's saying than what I'm saying, than what he is what I'm saying. But, verse 15, what concord or union has Christ with the devil? Or what part has he that believes with an infidel? That's one who disbelieves. Of what agreement has the temple of God that's you with idols? Idols? Yeah, idols. For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them, and I will walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. What's the next verse say? Wherefore, separate yourself from all of these things that are like that. Come out from among them and be separate. Don't touch the unclean thing. I know there's an urge.
church and you've done it your whole life and it's just part of, oh man, don't do it. This is one of your tests. This is one of your tests in life. Either overcome, crucify it, but get it out of your life. You can't have both. And be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And what? And what? And what? What's the end of that verse? Verse 17, say, if you have a Bible, if you will do this, and what? Now, I don't want to say what's not true. I don't want to leave anything out. But what if I do mingle with darkness? What if there's a lot of darkness in my life, but I'm a church man and all that stuff? What about that? Does God receive me? As in the context of what he's talking about here. Notice the next verse. This is what I want you to see. And if you'll do that, he said, I will be a father unto you. You will experience me as father. And most Christians don't. But you will. You know why you will? Because you're paying the price to do things his way, to honor him in your devotion and your affection for him. I want to do it your way. And I, man, I dread these choices. I mean, I hate my choices. Man, I've done that my whole life. And now I really, oh God. But I'm still aware of where I came out of and where I was going. And I am keenly aware of the fact that you draw a fine line, Lord. And you're not liberal. And you don't excuse or dismiss us when we don't do right. Say, oh, come on, you can do better. You don't do that. You just say, this is the way walk in. If you don't want to walk this way. And I know you're like that. But you're fair. But you said, I will be a father unto him. And he shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. I want God to be God. I do. But God says, in order for you to experience me and for you to enjoy me as what I am, you got to get away from everything that I am opposed to. I just thought of another verse. I like this. Exodus 20. Turn to Exodus 20. Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments chapter. He told his people, like in verse 5, Thou shalt not bow down yourself to them, these things the world worships. I don't care if it's a football stadium, a basketball arena. I don't care what it is. Whatever it is that people have a passion for that drives people. Listen. You shall not bow down yourself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generation of whom? Of them that hate me. That's what he said, isn't it? Of them that hate me. And then in chapter 33... Verse 14, and God said, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. My presence, that's him experiencing his being with you. Verse 15, and he said unto him, if your presence doesn't go with me, then I don't want to go. Verse 16, now listen to this. For wherein shall it be known that we are your people and have found grace in your sight? If you do not go with us, how shall it ever be known? 
And look at the end of that verse. So shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are upon the earth. So shall we be separated. Why? Because of who we are. We are Christians. We are not good guys and good buddies. We're not bad, ugly, hateful people either. We're just people that came out of that hateful, worldly way, filled with the world, thinking like the world, acting like the world, crying because of the world until God changes all this. That's who we were. That's what we often are when we come to the Lord. And God begins to open our eyes to see that my present problem is not that God doesn't love me, not with me, not for me. My problem is I won't let go of the stuff that he's going to judge. I could do a lot better. I don't want to be separated from the world, Christians say. I don't want to give up this or give up that. I want to go to a church that does that and everybody's happy with it. And yet God, he said, I want to be your father. I want you to experience me as your father. But for you to do that, you're going to have to separate yourself. Are you back in Psalm 106? Go back to that. You're going to have to separate yourself from the world. In verse 55, he said, don't mingle yourself with the world out there and learn their ways. I'm sure there have been people that have gone to college that didn't, but not very many. I wasn't supposed to say that, was I? I know there are people that... In this time and age, see college as the, if you don't do that, you'll probably die. You'll, you'll be broke flipping hamburgers all your life, like other college graduates. But what I learned in college, and I'm, maybe it's different today. Maybe this generation's got it much better than our generation did. I think it's the same spirit. But so much I've learned who becomes my friends, my insecurities, gravitate me to other people and you know they use bad words and I don't you shouldn't talk like that but I'm not going to say that to them because I don't want them to reject me you know God may have a problem with me but I gotta have some friends and I don't want to hang out down at the Christian center over there where they you know a few little dorky looking folks hang around I want friends so we start mingling with the world I didn't say we couldn't be nice and friendly. I mean, we should be nice. We should have a good report in the world. We should pay our bills and treat people fair and, and help people. And in that way, we love them. We don't deny people uh, uh, access to our talents if they need it. We just won't run with them. I don't want to be in your crowd. Yes, I'll come over and help you. Yes, I'll do, th- I'll do a lot of things for you. I'm a Christian. But I will not run with you. I will not go to your parties. I certainly won't go to your dancing. After a wedding or before, I will not. I don't want that stuff. I don't want it in my life. Not anymore. So if you want to go there and watch that and be with that crowd, go ahead. I'm not going to do it. Well, that movie's not so bad. There's just a little bit of cussing in it. You know that story. The kids that wanted their dad to let them go to a movie, and their dad said, well, that's not a good movie, is it? Didn't there a little bit of that? Well, it's not much. Dad said, I'll come back tomorrow, and I'll tell you, give him an answer. He baked some cookies, put some dog dirt in them. Mixed just enough doggy dirt in his 
brownies that you probably could mostly just taste the brownies. And he set them on the table and said, I'll let you go to the movie if you'll both eat a brownie. Oh, boy, he said, now, I put some dog dirt in there. Yeah. No, not much. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Just, you know, I just, uh, and put it in the mix and bake them here. Just a little bit of doggy dirt in there. It's okay. The kid said, I ain't eating that. Well, you're not going to that movie either. We don't like to separate. I'm trying to talk about Christian hatred, and I'm still talking about separation. I will for the rest of this morning. Because I see it, to me, I realize the deep requirement that I have to really make a break from the world and everything that God must judge is things I got to hate. Because if I don't hate things that are going to destroy me, I will mess with things. I will tolerate those things. I'll kind of say, well, you know, after, I mean, I'm not anybody's judge. I'm a, yes, you are. You're going to judge angels. We judge righteous judgment, Gospel of John says, but we call it the way it is. We judge ourselves. We look in the mirror. Sometimes we say, you're awful. You know that? You're terrible. Oh, man. But more and more, I begin to realize just how weak we are, how much we need God, how much we need him to walk with us, be with us, encourage us, inspire us, correct us. I need all of that. You leave me alone, I'll go back to the world. But he's not going to leave me alone. God cares about me. But I have to learn to hate what he hates. Jacob I loved in Romans 9. He said, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. They had never even been born. It didn't mean that he despised Esau. He just said things in your life will not be the way it would, you know, with your brother Jacob because he's going to be blessed. He said, I'll make you a nation too. You'll be a wild man like Ishmael. And they are. But God can choose to love whom he wants to, and if he doesn't want to love somebody, he doesn't have to. He can do that. I have a choice. I don't have to turn away from sin out there, sinful things, things that are sin for me. They may not be for you, but they would be for me. I don't have to turn away from that. I can go ahead and do it. I'm free, but I'll pay the price. My sin will find me out. But if I love the Lord, if I'm concerned, I won't do it. There has got to be this element of separation in our lives from all that is wrong and all that should be avoided. There are things in this life that we should dislike, things that we should be hostile towards, things that we should loathe and turn away from. We should. If a man who smokes, if there was some way he could know that the next puff of his cigarette is lung cancer, that was the moment of, of death. Because he just said, I can't stop smoking. What if the Lord had said to him, the next cigarette you smoke is your death? Would he smoke it? Uh, if he had any sense, he'd throw them all away, wouldn't he? Because they will destroy him. 
But he'll never stay away from those cigarettes until he hates what they've done to him because somebody behind those cigarettes has made a fool, made a slave out of a man. And in that slavehood, he destroyed him. And when he sees that, he's done with cigarettes. You're not making a fool of me no more. I'm not dying for my own personal pleasures. I'm not going to run around. I'm not going to look for and find me some thrill because there's death in every bit of it. I love life. I don't want death. This is the kind of life, I think, as we grow, we've got to see this. This has to come forth in our lives. We have to begin to see what this is all about. Turn to Deuteronomy 7, if I'm going to finally get to it. Deuteronomy 7. What a chapter. Look at verse 1. When the Lord your God shall bring you into the land to possess it, and has cast off many nations before thee, the, and then he mentions all those people, seven nations greater and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God shall deliver them before you, and shall smite them, and utterly destroy them, thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. That's tough, but it's, it's what he said. Neither shall you make marriages with them, not let your daughter be theirs or your son marry one of those girls. Why? In verse 4. What did God say would happen? For they will turn away your heart. It doesn't go the other way. It doesn't work the other way in the Bible. It goes the wrong way. They will turn away your heart from following me that they may serve other gods, so will the anger of the Lord be kindled upon you and destroy thee suddenly. That's the price you pay. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall destroy their altars, break down their images, cut down their groves, burn their graven images with fire. Why? You are holy people unto the Lord your God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself of all the peoples that are upon the face of the earth. And God didn't love you because you were greater in number, because you were the fewest. But because the Lord has loved you, in verse 8, and because he would keep the oath with which he has sworn unto you to your fathers, has the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand, and has he redeemed you. Know therefore, verse 9, that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that what? That love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generation, and repays them that hate him to their face. And you realize, as I say it again, there's, there's a lot of scripture that defines all of this. To hate God from God's side is to treat God as less than God. That's, that's the easiest way I can think to say it. From God's side is to relate to or treat God less than he requires or desires. It doesn't mean you can't have church. We can have church without God. I believe a lot of people do. We can do a lot of things without God because somebody's talked us out of it, the clever, deceitful 
Somebody seducing spirits has rearranged the words of God and the way of God till he's just somebody upstairs, the good guy upstairs who loves us all and, uh, and just cares about how much we love each other. That's all he cares about. And man has redefined God. He's a convenient God. And you begin to worship this God, there are no holes barred. You can dress any way, come any way, act any way, you can live together, you can drink. Because after all, we're just, we're just human. I mean, we're, nobody's perfect. We can't just overcome. You can't live with the Sermon on the Mount and blah, 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 blah. And people love that. They like that. But that's the nations that God drove out of the promised land. That's the way they would think. We don't need God. God is somebody there if we need him, but, we, you know, we got everything else. We don't need to turn to God for our physical needs. We don't need to turn to God for our material needs. I mean, we don't have to pray and claim and do all that. I mean, God has given us all these other things in the world to, to get our needs met with. Who taught that? Who back through the years taught my parents that? That's what they thought. Or their parents Way back yonder in my tree. I got to be a Baptist preacher somewhere back in my tree. He didn't believe like that. Man, he laid the law down. How do I know? I don't know. I want it to be like that. Some old country church, a fire flew out of his mouth when he spoke. There was heat in the room, smoke coming off the altar when he preached. People went home, man, I'm burning up. Yeah, you better get right. Or you'll get left. Listen to me, all of you. There's just something about us and how we figured it all out. And we see it a different way than God says it. And we disregard what we hear. And we mingle. And we tolerate. And we, you know, we're okay with and we... We won't take a stand on of the dumbest things I've ever heard, same-sex marriage. That is the absolute dumbest. You talk about a dumbed-down age, we're in it. A man marrying a man. And yet there's people who say, well, you know. <laughs> they might as well preach like it. Because <laughs> that's about how much sense it makes. So we say, that's an abomination. <gasps> You're so unloving. I guess I am somebody. <laughs> There's so much in the Bible that we should hold to that's not socially acceptable, that's politically wrong. And it's the age we're in. Those little designs and ideas, those are idols. People live for that. They cherish that. Their employment is all about that. That's what their life is about. And they don't have any stands. Because it's not loving to take a stand. Who told you that? Well, I got it out of a book. Uh, maybe it bothers me too much, but I see the church today and so many professing people, and I'm, I'm not saying you, but I'm not leaving you out. If the shoe fits, it's for all of us to wear. All of us. But this age is so full of get and have. My name is Jimmy Gimme. And, you know, I want it now. No money down, no payments till 2018, however that works. 
60 days, same as cash. Get it. And we can disregard so much of what we heard and say, well, why would I do it? It's like healing. Why would you not take two aspirins for a headache? I've had that asked me a lot. Well, I've done it my, you know, years ago, but then I quit doing it because he said his word in Proverbs 4 was medicine to my flesh. Does he mean that? Does God mean that? I mean, is that important to him or is that just a word you can take or leave? It depends on you. For some of us, that's the way of life. For others, well, you know, I don't know if I'm ready for that. I doubt if he had shared it with you if you weren't ready for it. But this is what he wants. So you say, got a headache, right? No, I'm going to let God heal it. And he did. And you know what? For the last 40 years, I haven't had headaches anymore. Is it gone? Have I been delivered? Does that something maybe God was pleased with and made his presence known to me in that way? Could I enjoy even more of who he is and grow in his grace and more of his favor? Wouldn't you like, all of you here, wouldn't you like to have God's favor in a great measure with you all the time? What could go wrong that couldn't be fixed? But look how much doesn't get fixed. Am I saying it's because of a lack of separation or we're not turning away from the world? It might be. I don't know. I'm not anybody's judge because I don't follow people around and take notes. All I'm saying is God said this is the way you walk in it and I'll be your God. And everything that tries to draw you back to what God has just drawn you out of, you've got to hate it. You've got to hate it with a passion. You've got to despise it and turn from it and turn away from it. Jehu, or Jehu, ever how you would say it, a prophet came to my friend Jehoshaphat in Second Chronicles 19. Jehoshaphat, you know, he was doing well. He was a spiritual man, strove after God, did well and had abundance you couldn't believe. And old nasty Ahab and the ten tribes to the north said, I need some help up here. Jehoshaphat said, yeah, don't worry about it, man. Come on, boys, we're going up here and help a man. And when Jehoshaphat came back, a prophet met him, Jehu. And he had a lot of nerve, but all of God's prophets do. Jehu walked out. Here comes a king in his royal apparel from the war in the middle of the road or wherever he was. He said, Jehoshaphat, these are the words he said. Should you help the ungodly and help those that hate the Lord? Now, you went up to fellowship. We don't do that. But you went up there and you took your spiritual climate up there to where death lives. And you participated in a war to help that heathen. He said, should you help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? Therefore, the wrath of God, Jehoshaphat, is upon you. Now, when the wrath of God was on Jehoshaphat, it just meant that not everything in his life was going to do well. Because Jehoshaphat didn't get thrown into the pit. He didn't just suddenly die. Jehoshaphat still lived. 
He fought a wonderful battle. Remember 2 Chronicles 20 about Jehoshaphat dancing all the people won a great battle? I don't know what was left out of what come up short in his life or where his greatest struggle was. The Bible doesn't say, but the Bible said the wrath of God's on you. Just like in John chapter 3. You know, people are always saying, well, God hates sin, but he loves sinners. Have you heard that? Well, in John chapter 3, the last verse says, He that believeth on the Son of God hath eternal life, but he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. And he said, but the wrath of God abides on him. In his unbelief, in his whatever his unbelief, whatever it was, maybe he's a church member, just couldn't accept certain things that are taught. So therefore he chose not to believe that. And the Bible says the wrath of God was upon him. Or maybe it's a person who just rejects the whole package. The wrath of God is upon him. He doesn't fall dead and die. He doesn't quit making a good living. Doesn't quit being a husband or a wife. It's just that the wrath of God abides on him. If I knew how to teach that, I would. Because I can't explain in what way it manifests itself or in what way your life is empty because of God's wrath abiding on some area or on you. But the Bible talks about it many times. There's something about God drawing us to himself and declaring to us, if you want my favor, if you want to experience all that I am, you want my presence, he said in Exodus 33, if you want my presence with you, I want you to give me all your heart and all your time and all your attention and turn away from everything that I'm going to show you is wrong. I want you to put it behind you. And though it comes to lure you back, you're going to have those days in which it's easy to go back. I want you to hate it because if you don't hate it, you'll go back. I want you to despise it. Everything that I'm against, I want you to hate it. I want you to turn away from it. And if you don't do that, things won't work well. You go to church, you just have your usual, we're used to this. We have our usual struggles. We have our usual shortcomings, but, uh, you know, generally, you know, we're all right. We're going to heaven, and we are. It's just that there's more. There is more to what could be than what is. And it's probably, it comes down to, I believe, a lack of us despising those very things that God is against. Because when you begin to see it, when you begin to realize what all he's talking about, Things that are evil. You have to hate evil. Turn to Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13. What is the fear of God? Now, let me answer it for you. The fear of God is an attitude. It's an attitude that you have towards God. Causing you to revere, reverence, Honor with your life and choices, respect to be devoted to at any cost because of who he is. See, fear to us doesn't fit with fearing God because how could you fear somebody who is love? But there is a way to talk about fear that defines reverence. 
How many of you had a mom? Half of you. Well, this other bunch here ought to have some wings on your back then. My mother loved me. She did. But there were times I was scared of her because she made a rule. And I didn't want to do it. Now, I'm different from y'all's kids. I just didn't want to do it. To sometime, I'd just soon take the whipping and enjoy the moment, knowing I'm going to get wore out later, but, you know, it'd be worth it. Yeah. But my mother, you know, when she would break bad, man, when she hit that 220, that bowling point, when she did that, she wasn't loving acting. I didn't see her as... My mother wanted to hold me tight and put me to bed and rub on my ear. I didn't see that. Man, I had a frown on her and a big limb in her hand, and here she come on a war path. I mean, as I've said before, today they would have put my poor mother in jail. She'd been over in LaGrange, locked up deep somewhere. But you can't do that today. But she did that the same reason God does that. Whom you love, you're chasing. Because you don't want your children to be social outcasts or social misfits. We don't want to wind up our life being nature's waste. We want to amount to something. That's why God gives parents to make us mind. That's why we have marriage instead of like animals that just breed. Marriage is a husband and wife with a responsibility to raise children, their children. That's the way it is. And so... My mother, while she loved me, there was also times that I feared her. But, you know, even when I wasn't scared of her, I respected her. I didn't necessarily agree with her. There were times I don't think I even liked her. But she was my mother. You know, there's a lot of things that God says I still struggle with. Because I don't understand it all. I don't know how to put it in its spot yet. But I have no desire to break that commandment. He's God. And he's God who does what he does and says what he says and commands what he commands. And if God said, this is the way walk ye in it, I'm not going to say, well, I don't know if I want to walk. Because if you fear the Lord, folks, to fear the Lord is to bow that head and to humble your heart and say, as thou hast desired, so shall I do. That's the fear of the Lord. Because you see, the other side of fear is dread. Do any of you think you can have God speak his word to you and disregard it your whole life and not pay for it? Liberals have got a hard time coming in judgment day. Those who, nothing is dear. Well, you know, everything is relevant, whatever the age is, whatever, you know, whatever the culture commands, you know, just go with that. They got a terrible day coming because they have set aside the way of God for the way of life. They had it their way and not his way. But the Bible says in that verse 13, it said the fear of the Lord is to hate what? Does it say to hate evil? Oh, okay, good. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. It says that through that verse. I'll say it again. I said this earlier. What is evil? We have to define evil. What's evil? How would we define something that's evil? 
It's simple. Whatever is opposed to God and whatever God is opposed to is evil. Didn't he tell his disciples one time, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more my heavenly Father give the Holy Ghost to them that ask him? You remember that? Evil is just anything out there that God is going to judge. All evil shall be judged. God hates it. Psalm 5 and verse 5 said, God hates all workers of iniquity. Not the iniquity, but the workers of iniquity. God hates evil. And whatever is not of God, whatever doesn't please God, God is against. Now, what do we do as Christians? When it comes to our choices in this life, as Christians, some of you are newer, some of you have been in it a long time. Some say, well, when it's, you get older, it's easier to break from stuff because you're not as lively as you once were. I don't know. A lot of all that could be true. I don't know. But what do we do? We're sitting here this morning. We've heard what I've said. What do we do? Do we compel ourselves to hate? Do we tell ourselves that everything that I'm sorry I did, I'm, I'm going to hate it, so I won't do it again? My speech, my attitude, and oh, the devil keeps pounding on. You ever heard of vain thoughts? Well, it's in the Bible. Vain thoughts. He said, I hate vain thoughts. That's one of the things we hate is vain thoughts. The reason we hate them is because the devil projects these thoughts in your mind. I mean, you'll see something and the devil will put a thought in your mind. And you say, oh, my goodness. But you didn't decide to think about that. The devil put that in your mind. You can get rid of that pretty easy by rebuking it. <clears throat> see, I hate that. That's what got me in trouble. That very thing that he's trying to put on my mind is the very thing that got me in trouble. I hate that. I hate that. So what do we hate? Turn to Proverbs 6. What do we hate? What is it that God wants us to hate? If we're supposed to hate, what do we hate? Well, Proverbs chapter 6 gives us seven things. Seven things. It says here that God hates. And if God hates it, so should we. Are you with me? Well, play like you are, okay? And he says in verse 16, Proverbs 6 and verse 16, These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. If God says something is an abomination to him, then he hates it. Are you with me? Okay, look at the list of things that God hates, specified that God personally hates. Here's what he said. A proud look. That cocky, arrogant, I'm really important, notice me, ain't I something, look. A second thing is a lying tongue. You'll find nobody in heaven who lies. No liars. All liars, Revelation 21.8 says, all liars will have their part in the lake that burns with fire. Everybody knows before they lie that they're about to lie. Everybody. 
You know, before you tell your story, your version of it, you know if it's true or false. You know that. So that everybody who lies is guilty before God, saved or unsaved. You're guilty. Because you know, before you open your mouth, whether it's in a court of law or with your friends sitting in a car or in a classroom, you know before you say something if it's honest or dishonest. You know that. And you made a choice. You made a choice. You made a choice to lie, an ethical and a moral choice to lie. And God hates it. And if you don't hate it, you'll let yourself do it. Listen, all of you in here, you have to tell the truth. You may not have to tell everything you know. If a stranger walked up on the street and asked me a certain kind of question, I don't have to answer him. Somebody said, well, if you don't answer this, I'll put a gun to your head. Well, then I guess I just have to pay that price if I don't think I should answer it. But he said he hates a lying tongue. Notice the next thing he said, hands that commit abortion. No, I mean, excuse me, hands that shed innocent blood. Doesn't have to be abortion. That wouldn't be included. But look over, look what you're seeing about the beheadings and the killings and the misery and the savagery all over the world in this hour of violence, just like the days of Noah. Violent men, savage men, killing, having no feelings beyond compassion or mercy, just killing. Because they're not Muslim, they killed each other. If you're not a certain version of a Muslim, they kill each other. What a religion. Whatever it is. What a tragedy. Notice. Verse 18. God hates all that stuff you're reading. Verse 18. A heart that devises wicked imaginations. Thinking about what you're going to do to get it your way or hurt somebody or gain something. You know, it's something wicked. Something that God would not back. Feet that run, run to mischief. Boy, they got that everywhere. Something goes on, somebody wants to jump in. Verse 19, again, a false witness that speaketh lies. That's twice. And notice the last one. And he that causes division in the church. He that soweth discord. How do you sow discord? Talk. Talk. I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, don't, don't you tell anybody, but I'll tell you what I think. Well, this is what I heard. And somebody who likes you is want to accommodate you and say, yeah, I, you're my friend. You wouldn't lie to me. And, and they just did. And you believe what they heard about somebody. Now your ideas and thoughts about somebody are less than holy. You don't know if they did that or not. You heard they did that. So you start treating people like they're guilty. You quit fellowshipping with people. You avoid people. You stay away from people. And one of the things that God hates is those who sow discord. You read about it in the New Testament. In Galatians 5, he said, when you get to biting and devouring one another with all your reasons, said that kind of wisdom doesn't come from God. Your reasons and excuses come from the devil because you're dividing and separating God's body. 
God hates whatever separates from divorce right on down the line to his church and his people. Whatever God hooks up and puts together, it's his word. God hates the separation or the termination of it. That's what he said. And yet we as church, we can preach this the rest of our lives like gossip. You can preach on it every Sunday and people will still do it. And one of the reasons they can do it in the church is because people in the church listen to it. And we don't want to hurt somebody's feelings when they say, I got a juicy one today. We don't want to say, well, I really don't want to hear it because if it doesn't edify me or honor the Lord, we shouldn't talk about it. Well, so we listen. We're a partner to their sin instead of separating ourselves from all this trash. Lord, teach me thy way. Is this his way? To avoid all of this stuff? To hate this? It is. Teach me thy way that I may walk in thy truth. This is what God hates. This is the kind of stuff that we should also hate. Things that we should also avoid. This is not what God wants. It's what he's against. Turn to Psalm 119, verse 113. Psalm 119 and 113. I mentioned this a while ago. He said, I hate vain thoughts. You'd be surprised what vain thoughts really includes here. He says, I hate vain thoughts, but thy law do I love. I'm committed to your law. The word vain thoughts comes from the Hebrew word, which means divided, and is often translated as being double-minded. That liberal seeing things two different ways. You know, kind of being neutral in a debate or discussion. Or we sometimes would call it being open-minded. But he said it refers to being double-minded or maybe half-hearted. Half-hearted. Lukewarm, maybe. He said, I hate vain thoughts. The kind of thinking that people entertain that reestablishes God and his word is not what the Bible says that, you know, this is the way he is. Or people who have no word but just have a lot of a spiritual moment say, well, the Lord showed me this is the way he is. Well, what does the Bible say? I don't know. Well, what good is it for you to have an idea of what you say the Lord showed you if you can't back it up with the word? God doesn't speak outside of his word. So, he said, a double-minded man. James 4 said he is unstable in all of his ways. Here's what one commentator said about vain thoughts. He said, a person of divided mind who being destitute of firm faith concerning divine truth is tossed about, unwilling to take stands and compromises. And the psalmist said, I hate that. I hate that. You read in the book of Jude. There are things there at the end of that very end of Jude he talks about hating. Those that are double-minded, those that are tossed this way and tossed that way. Here's another definition. Those of perverse thinking that distorts and reverses the truth. This would refer to men who lie and wait to deceive. Remember that? Those, Peter said, twist and distort the scriptures. They're trying to take something that demands holiness and make it an option for you so that you won't be overwhelmed 
by the word. We're living in a time in which these very things I'm talking about are coming up more and more and more. The church is seen today as a social thing. And more and more people who preach the word and who demand allegiance to God on his terms are viewed as overbearing and legalistic, dogmatic, out of touch. They look at the few numbers, the few people that we have and say, see, because if you had 1,000, 2,000, or 3,000 people, well, you'd be on the right track. That's never been true. We have come to a place, all the teaching, 32, 33 years, after all these things that God has been saying all of these years, is it working for me? Am I still willing to turn my back at my age? At this time in my life, anything that's warping my understanding of God or my walk, am I willing to turn away from it and hate it? I'm no different than you are. Maybe you're more involved with, the, with things in this world where you have to go to work and who you work around. It may be more intense for you. But folks, the same truth comes back to all of us. We must hate the very things that God is going to judge. And if he's going to judge sin, we must hate it. If he's going to judge evil, we must hate it. If he's going to judge wickedness, we must hate wickedness. But we'll never hate it if we don't define it, if it's not made clear to us. Show me what you mean by all of this, Lord. Next week, I want to start here again because I'm not done with this. I want to start here again, if you're here, and finish this and show you not only what we must hate, but also what God hates more so that we can escape the judgments of this life of all things sinful. Amen. Bow your head with me. Heavenly Father, with thanksgiving this morning, we're thankful for your goodness, your grace, your mercy, everything that is about you and of you. We are thankful for it. We desire for all of these things to manifest themselves in our lives. Sometimes we feel bad about the decisions we have to make. We dread what other people are going to say about us and how other people feel about us. We so are in touch with this world. Lord, give us a heart to love you more than anything else. As we come to this communion table this morning, make us aware that the one we're honoring loved far beyond what we can understand yet. And because of his love for us, we're doing this today. Let grace prevail now, Lord, as we entertain in our thoughts that wonderful work of Jesus in redeeming us from sin. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.